Let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This is our second week in this passage, in these set of verses. So I want to begin again with verse 14 of James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Father, we once again come before your word not to sit in judgment on it, but to let it sit in judgment on us to hear you speak. Lord, soften our hearts. Grant us by your mercy understanding. In your name we pray, amen. James' number one concern in these verses is the nature of true saving faith. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And every person has to answer that question. Does the faith that I claim to have save me? Is it a saving faith? So in the end, when each of us stands before God, only faith can save us from eternal judgment. But James says there are actually two kinds of faith. One is a true faith. One is a false faith. One is the kind of faith that saves you. The other kind will not save you. The one kind has works. The other kind does not. Works or deeds, actions, distinguish the two kinds of faith from one another. And we saw last time in verses 15 through 20 that James calls this kind of faith that does not have works 
dead. That is dead faith. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he demonstrates how dead faith operates with the absurd illustration of telling a person who is lacking food and clothes, be warmed and be filled, but not actually giving them food or clothes. And he shows how then even believing sound doctrine does not make a faith that saves. After all, even the demons believe the most fundamental truth about God, that God is one. And they respond to it accordingly. They respond in the right way with a tremor of terror. That's what the word shudder means. With the challenge then in verse 20, James now shows us the opposite of a dead faith. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Okay, I'll show you. And so James demonstrates two kinds of faith then, so that we will have true saving faith, so that we will not be self-deceived into thinking we have one kind of faith when really we have the other kind of faith. To have true saving faith, you and I have to first see how faith without works is dead. We saw that last time, verses 15 through 20. And secondly, this morning, how faith with works saves. How the faith that has works saves. Now, to demonstrate that the kind of faith that saves is a faith that has works, James highlights two examples from the Old Testament scriptures, Abraham and Rahab. And I believe James chooses these two examples to prove, to show the universality of a faith with works. That is, that this is universal, that God is not partial. Think about this. Abraham is a man. Rahab is a woman. Abraham is a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, he is the Jew. He is the first. He is the original. That's why James highlights here Abraham, our father, right? He's our father. Our race, God's people, the Jews, began with Abraham. Rahab, on the other hand, is a Gentile. She's an outsider. She's not part of the covenant people. She doesn't have a basis for a relationship with God according to the covenant. Abraham is a patriarch. Not only a patriarch, but the patriarch. He's the first. Rahab is a prostitute. And James even makes the point of saying that. He didn't have to say that, but he says it. Rahab the prostitute... Abraham is our father, the father of the Jewish people. 
Rahab, a Gentile, is a prostitute. Abraham is influential. He has wealth, fame. Rahab, someone who's insignificant. She becomes significant because of what she does. But her, she herself was insignificant. Abraham is expected to be in this example. And I believe that as James writes this to these groups of believers who are now scattered outside of Palestine, who are forming Christian communities, churches, and worshiping together, that they expect Abraham to be in this example. Rahab is unexpected. I believe she's unexpected. And she embodies the very people whom James has already been saying don't discriminate against them. This example of Rahab is meant to sting a little bit. And so we have these two parallel statements then that place Abraham and Rahab on the same level of importance, the same impact of the evidence of true saving faith. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he, and then in verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she? Now let's look at verse 21 and let's talk about Abraham. Abraham's works were demonstrated when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. This is a key event in Abraham's life recorded in Genesis chapter 22. God had commanded Abraham. You remember, God had promised Abraham, I'm going to out from you and Sarah, I'm going to bring forth a nation. They're going to outnumber the stars of the sky. They're going to outnumber the grains of sand on the beach. I'm going to bring forth a nation. And it all started with Isaac. In fact, Abraham and Sarah only had one son, Isaac. All of the fulfillment of all of the promises were to come through Isaac. And yet in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says that God tested Abraham. And he commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to give up his life. And so Abraham does it. He takes Isaac up to the mountain. And he lays Isaac down on the altar. He binds him. And just before he's about to strike, God stops him and tells him not to do it. And then provides a ram, you will remember, in the thicket to take Isaac's place. And the angel's response to Abraham is, Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son. James points to this episode, and he identifies it as works, deeds, actions. So when James is talking about works, he keeps saying works and works, deeds. He's not just talking about things like being kind to your neighbor, giving to the poor, helping the person in need. He's talking about an entire worldview, 
He's talking about an entire lifestyle that places God at the center and lives accordingly. That's what he means by works. So James points to this episode and he says those were Abraham's works. The question though is, but how are these works then connected to Abraham's faith? James explains, verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now, let's just pause for a second because this is where we, as children of the Reformation, champions of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, tend to want to put words into James's mouth. And the way we read this is, the kind of faith that saves is a kind of faith that produces works. Now that is true, but it is not what James says. It just flat out is not what he says. It is not that faith produced works. It is that faith cooperated with his works. This phrase was active along with his works is literally faith worked together with his works. It's a play on words. The same root active along with is actually the word work. James says his faith worked together with his works. We also do have to notice that it is not faith that is the result of works. It isn't that works produce the faith either. But it is that works complete Abraham's faith. The result of the works is that Abraham's faith is not produced, but it is completed or made whole. Completed, filled up. James means that Abraham's faith came to its full expression. It reached its intended goal when Abraham obeyed God. James is saying that there is a fundamental relationship between the two, a faith that saves and works. They cannot be divided. Just like God is one with no division. Just like the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. Just like the law that is impartial and a unified whole. And if you break one law, you've broken the whole thing. You can't pick and choose. The law is not partial and says, well, you can commit adultery, but you can't commit murder. What James is saying is that faith without works is incomplete. It is a fractured, divided faith. It is not whole, and it is not able to save anyone. Is your faith whole? Or is it fundamentally divided, fractured? Do you claim to have faith in God but love the world? 
James connects the events of Abraham's story then to confirm this. Look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now that quote is from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. And watch what James has done here. Don't miss this. He begins in Genesis chapter 22 and he works backwards to Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. He doesn't start with Genesis 15 verse 6 and work forward to Abraham's obedience in Genesis chapter 22 as a result of his faith in Genesis chapter 15. He looks at Abraham's obedience in chapter 22, his works, and he says that his works completed or perfected, filled up the faith that he had back in chapter 15, verse 6. That's James's connection. Now, it sounds so backwards when we know that no one is justified by works. And that if we try to add to faith works as a merit for salvation, that's exactly what Paul says we cannot do. We'll come back to this. Okay. But let's go to Rahab, verse 25. Because just like Abraham, Rahab proves that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Rahab's works were demonstrated when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This is a reference to the events of Joshua chapter 2. The people of Israel are entering the land now after wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses has died. He has passed the Pass the mantle to Joshua, who is now leading the people. And Joshua sends spies into the land, and he sends them specifically into the city of Jericho, one of its stronghold cities, to spy it out and see what the deal is. Somehow, we're not told how, but somehow they end up in Rahab's house. Their presence there is reported to the king of the city, the king of Jericho, who sends guards or thugs of some sort to go and get them. When they come, though, Rahab hides them. She hides them and she misleads the guards. She even lies. She says, they've gone. They went out the front gate. They slipped away. If you go that way, you'll find them. You can catch them. And once those guys are gone and the front gates are shut, she goes up onto the roof where the spies are being hidden and she explains to them, to the spies, why she has done what she has done. And she says that she understands who they are and who Yahweh is. Their God, the Hebrew God, that she recognizes is giving them the land. She's saying, our hearts have melted away within us when we heard you were coming. Because we've heard about Egypt and we've heard about these other kings that you've taken out. We know that your God, whoever that is, your God is giving you this land. She says, I recognize it. James says those were works justified Rahab because her works animated or gave life to her faith. They completed her faith. She understood who this Yahweh was. 
She's not even one of the covenant people, but she sees and she understands. She recognizes it. And her faith is made complete by her helping of the spies. To seal these examples then, verse 26, James provides an illustration that frankly sounds backwards. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now he's already said this in a different way. Faith by itself without works is dead. But here he uses this metaphor, this picture of the body and the spirit. Now here's the thing. If I were going to use that metaphor, body and spirit, to describe faith and works... I would see the spirit as that which energized faith. I mean, uh, faith would be, the spirit would be faith. Faith would have energized or produced works. That's how we usually think of it, isn't it? If I have faith, it'll produce works in my life. So faith would then be the energizing living part that then produces works. The body would be the external the works, the expression, the living out of faith. In other words, an active body is evidence of inner life. It's evidence of faith. Outward works are evidence of an inner living faith. But that's the opposite of what James does with this metaphor. The body is the faith. The spirit is is the works. That's not a mistranslation in your English Bible. That is exactly what James says. In other words, it is the works that animate faith or give it life. Because this is James' perspective. If you're walking along and you see a body on the sidewalk, how do you know if it's alive or not? You take its pulse. You take its pulse. If it has no pulse, it is dead. It is a corpse. Works are the pulse of faith. That's what James is saying. Works are the pulse of faith. Now let's come back to verse 24 because it really is James' main point here. It's placed between the examples of Ahab, uh, Abraham and Rahab. And it's the verse that causes the controversy because it seems to contradict something the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in the book of Romans. Even though, as I pointed out last week, it really was the opposite for the early church. It wasn't James's verse that caused the controversy. It was Paul's verse that caused the controversy. We see everything because we're children of the Reformation. James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 24, to be justified means to be in a right standing with God. It means to stand in his presence as blameless, innocent, and therefore to be saved, to escape judgment. So a person will be considered just Innocent before God, James says, by works and not by faith alone. 
And if we just look at what James has said so far, it's totally consistent with everything he says in these verses. The difficulty is that while James says, look at the contrast here, while James says in 224, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Are James and Paul at odds? Are they contradicting each other? Some actually will say that James was trying to counter Paul's teaching, that he didn't understand Paul correctly. Others will say James understood Paul correctly, but, but James saw that Paul's teaching about from Romans 3.28 was actually having an effect in Christians' lives that wasn't healthy, that it was leading to free grace. I can leave, live however I want, which, by the way, Paul himself confronts and rebukes in the book of Romans. But some will theorize that James is writing to try to counterbalance what Paul is saying. If James is writing early, which he is, then Paul is not even writing letters yet, even though Paul has begun a ministry. Here's the thing. If we believe that there is actually only one divine author of Scripture, even though there are many human authors including Paul and James. But if we hold that there is one divine author and that the Holy Spirit has inspired both of these texts, which we do, then the answer has to be no. James and Paul are not disagreeing with each other because the Holy Spirit doesn't argue with himself. You and I do. We argue with ourselves. The Holy Spirit doesn't argue with himself. And you see, James and Paul, here's, here's, the, here's the answer. Here's the answer to the riddle. James and Paul are simply looking at faith and salvation from two perspectives. They are looking at the same salvation. Most telling is how they use the word justification. By definition, they mean the exact same thing by the word justification. But their perspective of justification is different. Here's what I mean. James uses justification as our final standing before God, as the final result of our lives at the final judgment. And you guys, this is exactly how Jesus uses the word justification. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, you ought to think real quick. I'm going to pause. Think about your social media account. Every careless word they speak. They will be judged. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. Same word, exact same word. Justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
So Jesus sounds a lot more like James than he does Paul. Or I should say, James sounds a lot more like Jesus than Paul does. But you know what? This isn't just Jesus. This is other places in the scripture. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm just going to read this for you. I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the hall of faith. Because the writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Is that any different than what James is saying? No, James says you have to have faith. James never says you can just have works. And then every example that the writer of Hebrews gives includes an action. By faith, Abel offered to God. By faith, Enoch was taken up that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Noah, being warned by God, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. Noah didn't just say, I believe you, God, you're going to flood the world. I'm ready. He went and constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive since she considered him faithful who had promised and then he goes on, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't love the world. He chose God. The God who had saved him, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Moses' faith led to persecution, enduring it. By faith, he left Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Every single example of faith is accompanied by some act of obedience. James is not alone in saying this. That's a true faith. That's a true saving faith. And the writer of Hebrews takes an entire chapter, a list, over and over and over and over and over again to say the exact same thing that James condenses to one sentence in James chapter 2, verse 24. It is Paul that then comes along and uses the word justification in a different way. Same definition. Paul takes justification and he describes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with apostolic authority, he describes a certain aspect of salvation, how a person initially gains a right relationship with God. You believe you are justified. 
And you can't add anything to that in terms of merits to God. He doesn't accept it. Now, let me give you a few illustrations of, of how this works. It's ways to wrestle, because that's a lot of stuff, and I know that. Okay. But here's some ways to illustrate it. What if you and I were asked to write down a description of this auditorium from where you sit and from where I stand? You would probably write something like this. There is a stage dead ahead in front of me. There is an exit behind me and also a door to the left, that door. The sound booth is behind me. That would be your description, something like that, of the room. Now, if I were writing a description of the room, I would say, the sound booth is out in front of me. There is a door to my right and an exit dead ahead. There is a stage behind me. There is a clock at the back of the room. Something you didn't even see because you're looking in this direction. Now, if someone were to take those two descriptions and just read them, not only would they say, this sounds like two different rooms, they would say, it sounds like two opposite rooms. Why? Because we're describing it from a different perspective. The vantage point is different. Think of it this way. In comparing faith with works of the law, Paul is comparing a tree with a telephone pole. Paul is saying that the tree, faith, bears fruit. The other, the telephone pole, demands that you climb it by your own efforts. Paul says that the tree is faith, and the only way to be justified before God, to be in a right relationship with him, is to have faith. And that living faith will bear fruit. The telephone pole are your works, your efforts, and they are never enough to make you right with God. No matter how hard you try to climb it, no matter how high you climb that telephone pole, you will never ascend to a right standing before God. James, on the other hand, is not talking about a telephone pole at all. It's not even in his thinking. James instead is comparing two trees. Two different trees. One tree bears fruit. The other is a dead tree. It's kind of like being confronted with, am I going to go with the living Christmas tree and be hip and cool and eco-friendly or am I going to buy the plastic fake tree? And some of those plastic fake trees look really real. And when you get up close, you go, that's a fake tree. That's not a real tree. It looks like it kind of on the outside, but that's a fake tree. You can smell a real tree. That's the difference in it. You can smell a real tree. It's 
what James is doing. James is comparing two trees, and he's saying one tree is alive. One tree is real. That tree will save you. That kind of faith will save you. That's a fake tree. That's a fake faith. That faith is not real. It's a dead faith. It will not save you. That's what Paul and James are doing. Or one more illustration. Imagine this. Imagine that you are learning to skydive. You've wanted to skydive all your life, and so finally you've signed up. You've taken all of the lessons, all of the training to learn how to skydive. And you've had two instructors. One is named James. One is named Paul. These two instructors have taught you to skydive. And every time you've jumped out of the plane, you've been attached to one of them. But today is your first jump by yourself. You're not going to be attached to anybody. And both James and Paul have joined you for your first solo jump. And so you're in the plane and you're up and you're getting up to altitude and you're starting to check all your gear. And you look over at instructor Paul and he says to you, remember something. You're about to jump out of a plane, thousands of feet, and you're going to plummet toward the earth. And no matter how hard you flap your arms and kick your legs, that will not keep you from striking the earth and killing yourself. The only thing that will save you is your parachute. It's the only thing. I don't care how much you think in your own mind you can fly. I don't care how hard you flap, how many tumble somersaults you do. None of that will keep you from hitting the earth. Only your parachute will save you. Right. Got it. You turn and look at James, and James goes, remember, pull the cord. Pull the cord. Got it. So you jump, and out go Paul, and out goes James, and you guys are all falling. You're skydiving. You're living the dream. And you look over at Paul, and Paul says, only your parachute. And you look over at James, and James says, pull the cord. Pull the cord. And of course, because your faith is real, you make the jump, okay? You land safely. And when you get on the ground and you're rolling up your parachute, you look to, you look to Paul and you say, Paul, you kept saying only your parachute, only your parachute would save you, which I, that makes total sense to me. But James over there, he keeps saying, pull the cord, why don't you guys agree? And Paul would look at you and say, what are you talking about? Of course you have to pull the cord. The only kind of parachute that will save you is one, the cord that you pull. So you turn to James and you say, you know, you keep telling me pull the cord, but Paul keeps explaining to me that there's nothing I can do to save myself. I have to trust in the parachute alone. And James would look at you and say, of course only the parachute is going to save you. The cord doesn't save you. 
Only the parachute is going to save you. What, did you think you could just flap your arms as you plummeted to the earth? James and Paul are not standing face to face opposing each other. They are standing back to back defending the same salvation by faith against different foes, against different falsehoods. And the falsehood that Paul is confronting is one that says you can be good enough. You can check off all the boxes. You can jump through all the hoops. And you can merit God's favor and be justified. And James has got a different foe. He's saying, I don't care how much you say you have faith. If you don't follow Christ, if your life isn't submitted to him, if you're not growing spiritually, if you're not forsaking the world and being transformed, being made perfect, the kind of faith you have is not a faith that's going to save you when you stand before God on judgment day. So some of us need to hear this message You cannot gain God's favor by your own works, your own merits. Only faith can bring you into a right relationship with God. You can't rest on those things. But some of us need to hear this message. Your faith, if it does not have works, is a dead faith that will not gain God's favor in the final judgment. And those works are not just doing good things. They are talking about forsaking the world. They're talking about dying to self. Those are works. Think about that list in Hebrews. Everything from offering God an acceptable sacrifice to packing up everything you own and moving to a land that you don't have yet, but God said someday I'm going to give it to your descendants. Everything. Those are all works. The only right response for either one is to repent. It's to turn. If you are trusting in your own goodness, if you're claiming any credit whatsoever for gaining God's approval, turn from your boasting, humble yourself, receive the gift of God's salvation. That will result in works that please God. That's Paul, that's his message. If you are hearing this, though, and you feel no compulsion to obey God, to please him with works of righteousness, living a life of holiness, and you feel comfortable with the world because you have faith after all. You have the right words. You have the right doctrine. You've grown up in church. You have the right pedigree. Check your faith to be sure that it is real faith and that you are not deceived by a counterfeit faith, by a fake faith. Take your pulse, James says. The pulse is vital. It's not optional. The faith without a pulse is a dead faith, and it saves no one. Lord, We know that our salvation depends upon you. That there is nothing we can do as sinful, rebellious people 
proud of our own righteousness many times. There's nothing we can bring before you and impress you or merit grace. And yet, Lord, I fear that many people in churches claim to have faith, but they also want to love the world. They want to accept the world's viewpoints. They want to have the glitz and glamour, all of the charms that the world offers. They're not really captivated by you. They haven't really ever believed in you and given their life to you because you are the pearl of great price that is more precious than anything in the world. Lord, help us to not be self-deceived into thinking we have faith when there is only one kind of faith that will save us, and it's a faith that works, a living faith. Lord, I trust it to your spirit to convict the hearts of people In your name I pray these things, amen.